You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And today, <laughs> this will be the, the third episode in a series of episodes where we debunk common vaccine myths. As usual, before we dive into the science, we're going to do a little icebreaker. And since uh, last week we spoke about our pet peeves, I thought maybe this week we could talk a little bit about our phobias. And um, Andrea, I know you obviously know me. You've known me for over a decade now. Um, I have quite a few phobias that I can talk about. Um, some very common ones are agoraphobia. I have a fear of heights. I have a fear of um, claustrophobic. I have all kinds of phobias. But I have one phobia that I think is a little strange. So I'll talk about that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Brace yourself. Um, so I have this weird thing with birds. Did you know this about me? <laughs> no, I didn't, but that's hilarious. All Which right, I need, hear, I need to hear more. <laughs> well, so it's not actually a fear of birds. I like birds. I don't want any harm to come of birds, but I have a fe- this thing. I'm anticipating that something bad will happen to birds. Now, hear me out. I grew up in Brooklyn, obviously, you know, an urban setting, and I think maybe I, I would always see pigeons being run over by cars, flying into windows, and clearly it left some sort of a mark. And now I'm just so, I I don't know, acutely aware that birds are super fragile. And now just watch, anytime you watch a show or a movie, watch, anytime a bird shows up, it's going to die. For sure, it's going to die. (laughs) So I don't know if it's a phobia. I just have this weird thing where I'm anticipating something bad happening to birds and it freaks me out, grosses me out. There you go. Are you you judging me? (laughs) No, I mean, I get it. Like birds are, you know, they're being extincted because of our behaviors. I mean, windows in skyscrapers kill thousands of birds every day. So uh. I totally, I totally get it. And I, I empathize. I feel terrible mm. for the birds too. Although yes. I'm not, I'm not scared of it. I'm more saddened by it. It's, I really, I have this weird thing of feathers and bones and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway, that's mine. What's yours? Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I feel like there's probably some weird phobia that I have, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. I will say my, my two, biggest ones and again they're they're probably shared amongst people are certainly claustrophobia and not not technically agoraphobia but social anxiety to the degree that i get very very anxious about all sorts of kind of public interactions, whether that's, you know, I'm traveling to a new city and I'm worried about where I'm going to park or whatever. But the claustrophobia is really bad. And it got worse uh, when I was trapped in an elevator in my old apartment building. Uh, I was by myself, which makes it worse. If I'm in an elevator with someone else, I'm calmer than if I'm solo, because at least I feel like, I don't know, someone can save me or someone can commiserate or keep me calm. Um, but elevators for sure, um, airplanes, like when you're sitting on the tarmac and not moving, 
I have full-blown panic attacks. Um, I'm good mm. once the airplane is moving, but it's this this sensation of being trapped and not m- being able to make any forward progress. And I know, you know, all the shrinks out there, it's a control thing. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but certainly um, that's definitely gotten worse over the years. <laughs> And Andrea, you know, obviously I know we're we're joking around right now and breaking the ice, but of course, you know, in a future episode, I know you and I feel very strongly that we are going to talk about, uh, you know, mental health related issues such as anxiety uh, that touch both of our lives. So certainly not trying to make light of it in any way, just Absolutely. throwing that out there. Absolutely. So, okay. We are going to continue this conversation debunking vaccine myths. Um, As a recap or a little refresher, last week we debunked um, a bunch of myths. So we talked about, uh, you know, a lot of people think that vaccines aren't necessary for me or my kid because you're getting vaccinated. We talked about why that's not the case. Uh, We debunked that natural infection is better than um, that. Sorry, that actually having an infection is better than getting vaccinated for infection and that this natural immunity is better than vaccine induced immunity. And we debunked that. Uh, We also talked about um, hygiene. So a lot of people credit a reduction in infections over the years to hygiene. And certainly hygiene has played a role, but uh, cannot take the credit, uh, you know, cannot certainly cannot take the sole credit because vaccines have had a huge part in that reduction. And then finally, we talked about uh, modifications to the vaccine schedule and this idea that you can overwhelm the immune system by um, by vaccinating and that we should space out vaccines. So we debunked that uh, and, and, you know, really focused on how there's absolutely no science behind the Sears schedule, for example, that's um, so often cited. So uh, one last really quick refresher. The whole reason we're talking about this uh, is that the World Health Organization just last year, even before COVID, named vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 threats to global health. Um, Of course, we recognize that the reasons why people choose not to vaccinate are complex, uh, but lack of confidence in vaccine safety driven by concerns about adverse events has been identified as one of the key factors. So today we're really going to focus on these adverse events, and then we're going to spend some time talking specifically about the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, That being said, there's a lot of ground to cover, so there may in fact be a part four to this episode, (laughs) depending on how it goes. So Andrew, do you want to kick things off? Sure. So the first myth that we're going to discuss is um, the, the, the conception that the side effects of vaccines are worse than the diseases they're meant to prevent. So this is a little bit separate from, you know, the vaccine itself is causing the disease, but more, it's not worth getting a vaccine because the side effects are worse. Now, Generally speaking, and, you know, this is very true for pretty much every vaccine, side effects from vaccines are minimal. Um, The most common side effects that you encounter are things like injection site soreness or very low-grade fever. Sometimes people have things like lethargy or maybe a temporary runny nose. Um, There are some vaccines that, that have some potentially serious side effects. And again, these are extremely rare across the board, Um, you know. 
in addition, vaccines that were more commonly associated with potential side effects, such as the oral polio vaccine, which is using uh, an attenuated version of polio, um, those are no longer used in our in our society. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS. Um, but in this system, which is managed by the CDC, um, between 1990 and 1992, there was only one reported incident of a potential fatality that may have been associated with vaccines. Um, One of the challenges here is that many people don't see the consequences of not being vaccinated. Um, And so we we say that vaccines are victims of their own success. So before we had vaccines for things like polio, smallpox, measles, um, haemophilus influenza, type B, pertussis, and other sorts of diseases, thousands of people were dying or had severe, serious morbidity, long-term illnesses, etc. Now that we have vaccines, most people alive can't recall or can't remember when that happened. Um, Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you know, vaccination is the best form of protection. Um, I Go ahead. Jess. Sorry. I, I was just going to say in that same vein, I have to chime in here with my little public health spiel. Um, absolutely. You know, people forget, right, you know, what what these what these diseases are actually like and how lucky we are to have vaccines. But it's also so much easier to measure the presence of a disease uh, than the absence of a disease. So totally, absolutely. <laughs> what you just said, vaccines are victims of their own success. Sorry, just had to no, plug public health there for a moment. Absolutely. 100 <laughs> percent accurate. Um, And I think it's worth remembering why we have side effects to a vaccine. And, you know, I I don't really like to call them side effects as an immunologist. I like to call it an immune reaction because that's that's exactly what it is. So when you get a vaccine, you're getting this mimic of the disease in question. And that mimic, that component of the vaccine that's you know, masquerading is tricking your immune system. So you get injected with this component. And if you want to hear more about the types of vaccines, you can go to episode two. Um, But it could be a a killed virus. It could be a subunit. It could be in the case of the COVID-19. It could be a piece of RNA. These are going to tell the immune system, hey, I'm a foreign and potentially dangerous invader. And as a result, that immune system, your immune system mounts a response. It sounds the alarm and it starts doing all of the things that it does during actual infection. So activating other immune cells, producing all these chemicals that lead to inflammation. So you have swelling, you have soreness, you have a low grade fever. These are all things that you want because it means that your immune system is responding appropriately and it's mounting that response that you want so that you're protected from the disease in question if you ever encounter it. Um, so, you know, I think there's there's a lot of misconceptions where people expect to get a vaccine and they don't even know they got it. And, and ultimately, that's not a great thing because that means that your immune system maybe is not responding appropriately and is not um, reacting to the vaccine component as you want it to. And, and I think, you know, some of that leads to a lot of the anti-vax vaccine rhetoric or some of the misconceptions that um, circulate in that group of people. Thank you. Uh, that That is so, so true. Um, lots swirling. Um, so that makes me think that we should really talk about VAERS. And you just touched on that, Andrea. That's the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. Um, as you said, it's run by the CDC. Um, and it's just one method of monitoring vaccine safety. 
Um, it's a fairly basic and standard practice, similar to the less formal reports of drug adverse events to the FDA after drugs are on the market. These voluntary reporting systems are an early warning system, and they're, they're not perfect. And we're going to talk about their shortcomings in just a, a moment. But their purpose is really to indicate a, a possible new trend that might indicate a previously unrecognized side effect or risk. And such reporting systems are, are also important because drugs are typically studied in thousands of individuals before going to the market, but then they may be used by orders of magnitude more than that. So we're talking about thousands in studies, but then, you know, maybe millions of people are taking the drugs or, of course, getting vaccines. So therefore, there, there may be side effects or risks that are statistically too small to show up in these studies of thousands of people, but will show up when given to millions. Were you just about to say something? I was gonna, I was gonna say, Jess, you know, I anticipate, you know, objection here where people are like, well, why don't you just do a clinical trial in millions of people? And ultimately, that's just simply not feasible. Um, you know, there are limitations to having a study, you know, be that large uh, in the case mm -hmm. of evaluating the efficacy and safety of, of drugs or vaccines. Right. And of course, the clinical trials are very carefully designed, as we talked about in, in previous episodes, to make sure that they're representative of all different types of subpopulations. So um, yes, very, very important to clarify that. Thank you. We have to spend a little bit of time talking about Ooh. this system because just because something is reported to VAERS and is included in the VAERS database that does not automatically mean that a vaccine caused the reaction. Do you want to chime in here, Andrea? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, this is something that chaps my ass. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think the intention behind VAERS is, is very important. I think it's, it's a way for us to, you know, global or nationally surveil uh, potential causes for concern. Um, the issue is, is that, Anybody can report anything, right? There's no burden of proof. It's not scientifically rigorous. It, it's any old person, any person of the general public can claim something is a vaccine adverse event or a vaccine injury, as we often hear. Um, and and very often, one, it's, it's not remotely related to a vaccine, but then you get into that same wheelhouse of correlation does not equal causation. Um, and, and of course, the vast majority of people, when they're using VAERS as evidence, don't have a full understanding of that. So just to reiterate what you're saying, this is not any kind of a scientific, scientifically rigorous assessment of risk. It's, it's not a scientifically reviewed database, right? This is entirely voluntary. Um, and so, of course, people could take it upon themselves to report what they believe might be a vaccine side effect. And we know, of course, that um, these voluntary reporting systems are subject to reporting bias. So if the news reports something about the risks of a flu vaccine, we will see a spike in VAERS reports of flu vaccine side effects. It's so important to understand. Um, there are things on there. I, I took I've taken looks at the database and there are just 
if if you want to be amused, there are just some very absurd claims on there. Um, actual serious side effects from vaccines are extremely rare. Um, as just as you met, just mentioned, um, these adverse events are very heavily influenced by publicity. So a news story or a misinterpreted headline, again, I know it's something that's a pet peeve of both of ours, um, these will lead to spikes in reported events. Legitimate serious adverse events are one out of one million vaccines. So extremely, extremely rare um, to encounter those. And just for some perspective there, your odds of getting struck by lightning, I I always mess up the statistic. It's either one in 500,000 or one in 700,000. Either way, you're more likely to get struck by lightning than to have an adverse event from a vaccine. Let's just get that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Just very briefly, I I don't know how much more time um, we we want to spend spend on this, um, you know, it still is, VAERS still is a very important source of information for the CDC and, and other organizations to to monitor vaccines. And Andrea, I think, did you actually, I think you had an example, am, am I making that up, <laughs> of when, of how... Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. sure. I was going to, I was going <laughs> to mention that later, but that's fine. Um, oh, I'm so, sorry. No, 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 it's fine. No, no, it's, it's relevant. So, so if there is a legitimate risk, one of the advantages of having these types of monitoring uh, repositories is that vaccines are constantly being reviewed and monitored for potential adverse effects or potential safety issues. So uh, one example I like to use is in the case of rotavirus. So in 1998, uh, the very first rotavirus vaccine was launched in the U.S. and it was called RotaShield. So to set the stage, rotavirus is a very significant cause of gastroenteritis disease, especially in babies. Um, And it accounts for about 400,000 physician visits, 200,000 emergency department visits, um, between 50 and 70,000 hospitalizations, and 20 to 60 deaths every year in children younger than five years old. So it's a significant burden on, of course, morbidity and mortality. Um, So having a vaccine is, is obviously very important. Now, in the case of the RotaShield vaccine, um, there had been a few reports of a very rare condition called insusception. This is a gastroenterological disorder where the intestines um, kind of slide into one another. It's it's very rare. It it requires pretty much surgery. Um, but again, it's very serious, and and um, there was cause for concern that it might have been linked to the vaccine. So, so. When this was reported, ultimately through VAERS, uh, the vaccine was initially pulled to investigate it further. And it was actually determined that this particular vaccine, RotaShield, was increasing the risk of intussusception in babies within the first two weeks of either receiving the first dose or the second dose of the vaccine. Um, after three weeks after administration of either the first, second, or third dose of the vaccine, the risk was no longer there. However, that risk was substantial, especially after the first vaccine. So 
even though intussusception is, um, you know, again, relatively rare, but most common in infants in the first year of life, uh, the rates of intussusception is about one one out of 2,000 to one out of 3,000 children um, before their first year of life. So based on the investigation results, the CDC estimated that it would probably about be one or two additional cases of intussusception out of every 10,000 infants um, because of vaccination with the Rota Shield vaccine. So it's not a huge additional risk, but because this particular adverse event is, is so serious, this vaccine was in fact pulled from the market. So after it was pulled in 1999, after this was reported and investigated. So there was no rotavirus vaccine until 2006, where we released a new safe vaccine called Rotatech. And we now have a, a second one called Rotarix, which was released in 2008. So it's a great example of how this surveillance can be used for good um, and how it actually enables scientists to do due diligence when there is a legitimate report on the database. Right. And I think that was really, you know, an important uh, example to give Andrea, because, you know, lest we be accused <laughs> of, of being biased, I think it is important to, to point out that the VAERS and, and other surveillance systems, uh, of course, you know, there is utility, of course, in, in having those systems. Uh, but our point is that they are, because they are voluntary, you just, you have to be very aware and, uh, um, you know, interpret them with caution, right? So there was actually this study done in 2012 and, and many other studies since then, but this is just one example, um, titled Causality Assessment of Adverse Events Reported to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, VAERS. And they sought to determine if the causal relationships between the vaccine and the adverse events reported could be assessed through expert review. So they had all this, you know, criteria, the modified World, World Health Organization criteria that they used to classify the causal relationship between vaccines and these adverse events um, as either definite, probable, possible, unlikely, or unrelated. And there were all these independent reviewers. Um, you could read this study if you're interested. But basically, um, their report, they found that assessment of VAERS reports identified that causality was thought to be probable or definite in less than one quarter of reports. And of those reports, they were dominated by very minor local reactions, allergic reactions, or symptoms known to be associated with the vaccine administered. So things like body aches and uh, soreness at the injection site. So again, just trying to drive home here that it's totally voluntary when we do some really, um, you know, deep diving into whether or not the things that are being reported are actually causally linked to the vaccine. It seems that only a small number are actually causally linked. And among those that are the uh, they're actually very minor reactions. Anything else to add to this, Andrea, before we move on? Um I think I think we're good, Jess. Um, I really like that summary that you just put, and I and I want to end this with again the mantra that correlation does not equal causation, and that is particularly true when anything can be filed in a database such as VAERS with no burden of evidence. Mm -hmm. 
So what what should we talk about next? I, this is this is tough for us guys. We have a lot of ground to cover, and we're very passionate. So what do you think, Andrea? Um, maybe very quickly, just touch on you know we have mentioned that yes, there can be adverse events with vaccines if they're very serious or if they're increased above the proportion you would expect in the general public. Then of course those vaccines are pulled and reviewed and investigated. But many people still say, well, isn't even a small risk too much to justify? vaccination. And I think it's really important to keep in mind that we have to look at the the risk benefit analysis. Um, So I, you know, I'll kind of set the stage and I'll let you chime in here. Um, But I think, you know, of course, a serious adverse event, even if it's rare, like one in a million, which is typically the frequency we see serious adverse events, we can't justify that if there's no benefit from vaccination. Um, but but I think we know, and in my example just previously about rotavirus, rotavirus is caused for hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations, um, you know, medical bills, uh, overwhelming of medical institutions, and also deaths of babies. So, you know, the, the benefit of having a safe and effective vaccine there are certainly, um, you know, something to consider. I'm an applied statistician, right? So I, I'm a numbers person. And, and for me, it's just, it's an odds game. <laughs> you know, the fact that a child is so much more likely to be seriously injured by the diseases that are prevented by vaccines than by the vaccines themselves, for me, I mean, that that's the, the justification. And, you know, of course, as you're saying, you know, yes, we acknowledge any serious injury or death is, is too many. It's just, it's crystal clear that the benefits of vaccination greatly outweigh Way, this slight risk. Um, and, and again, you know, just one more time to reiterate, we are so spoiled because we live in a world with vaccines. So we, we just we can't even imagine what these actual diseases look like. And the, and the risks for them are so much higher than from than um, vaccine side effects or adverse events. I mean, and even just think about COVID, um, you know, your your risks of, um, of, of death are from COVID well, well, we'll get into the COVID vaccine, but the risks associated with COVID are far higher than what we've seen, um, you know, associated with the COVID vaccine. But more to come yeah. on that front. <laughs> For context, um, if we if we take a look at a risk benefit analysis of the the diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis vaccination, if there was no immunization program in the United States, it's estimated that pertussis cases would increase seventy one fold, and deaths associated with pertussis infection would increase fourfold. So, right there, comparing the risk of the disease uh, with the risk for vaccines really enables you to evaluate, um, you know, the benefits we truly get from vaccinating. Let's move on to the COVID-19 vaccines. That's what everyone wants to talk about now. So the VRB PAC, which is the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee for the Pfizer vaccine was last week. And it's expected that the FDA will consider the advice of this committee and approve emergency use authorization. EUA. So as such, that means that this week, vaccines are shipping out around the country. And that is truly incredible. Uh, Andrea, I'm sure you have something to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed with the the technological and scientific innovation that has really kind of laid the groundwork for this. You know, we're gonna debunk the myths that this was, you know, 
rushed or you know premature or things like that but but truly the the groundwork has been laid for these vaccines for for truly for decades so now you know of course we've been combating covid this whole time and now we get to combat all of the anti-vaccine myths and propaganda uh, <laughs> that have been unleashed as a result so let's start out and andrea uh, you know your um your perspective here as an immunologist is going to be so important, but can you take us through how and why we know that this vaccine does not change our DNA? Because there's this myth that the COVID-19 vaccine is going to change our DNA. So take us uh, through this. Yes. So um, <laughs> where do I begin? So, um, so the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine is made of a molecule called RNA. And this RNA is contained inside this little fatty capsule. And the reason we use this little fatty capsule is because RNA is very fragile. And um, the fatty capsule helps stabilize it, make sure it doesn't degrade too quickly, and also ensures that it gets delivered into our cells. Um, if you're thinking about um, kind of very, very brief molecular biology, the molecule RNA serves as a messenger system. It's a molecule um, that allows our genome, and our genome is all of the DNA that we have in our body. So every cell in our body has DNA, and that DNA is tucked inside the nucleus of every single cell in this very, you know, restricted compartment. Um, but but this RNA serves as this intermediate molecule that allows our, our DNA to be converted into the functional components of the genes. So uh, the analogy I, I've used a couple of times is if you en envision the DNA to be the encyclopedia for a living organism, RNA is simply a page of notes that's been jotted down from one volume of the giant DNA encyclopedia. It's not the same format, so it's not a photocopy quite. Um, it's really, you know, kind of transcribing it. Um, but instead, it's a similar version, but it's simplified and it's more user-friendly, kind of like what you do when you take notes of something. Um, so those RNA notes are then read by a complex in our cells called a ribosome. And ribosomes, what they do is they read the RNA and they manufacture a protein from that sequence of RNA. So the end product of our gene, which is the actual physical protein, is what we consider to be the functional component of a gene. So it's important to understand that DNA lives inside the nucleus of our cells and RNA does not. Um, RNA, in addition, only exists for this very brief period of time. The only It's only needed as long as the ribosome needs it to read it and make that protein, and then it disintegrates. It has to be in this lipid capsule for the vaccine because it's not stable. It, it degrades very quickly. So in the case of the COVID-19 vaccine, especially the Pfizer and the Moderna ones that we're talking about, there isn't even DNA involved. Not only is there not DNA in the vaccine, there's no viral DNA, but it doesn't even interact with our human DNA because they're, they're in different compartments of the cell. More than that, these just because they have similar names, DNA and RNA, they're not compatible molecules. They can't actually interact functionally with each other. Um, so, so essentially, the RNA in the vaccine is going to get injected into our body, be taken up by specific cells. The, the ribosomes in that cell will turn it into the viral sp spike protein, which is what our immune system is going to recognize. Um, once, once, 
the cells read that template and they make the viral protein and our immune system recognizes it, that RNA is going to be completely gone. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. You have that immune response that's ongoing. It's generating that memory. Um, and there's no DNA involved in any capacity. See, that's it, guys. Just what Andrea said. <laughs> No, you you do such a nice job explaining this. Really, um, I mean, it's it's a it's it's complex to those of us who are not immunologists, but you you break it down. So, just in a nutshell, the RNA in the vaccine will never ever interact with our DNA, right? So they they won't interact, and they certainly aren't going to change it. One hundred percent. Okay, um, so no DNA involved at all. This myth is totally debunked. There's no. Um, scientific credibility to this. Okay. Anything else to add to this myth or can we move on? Let's keep it going. (laughs) Keep it rolling. Okay. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So the next one, of course, you know, we were just talking about um, adverse events um, as a result of vaccination. So there's this myth that there are serious side effects to the vaccine. And this is this is really not true, or at the very least, it's being blown out of proportion. So we know that nothing is without risk. Um, as we stated, immune reactions are expected. Um, and not only are they expected, they're a good thing, because as Andrea pointed out, it indicates that our immune system is mounting a response. Uh, and just to reiterate the statistic that uh, I believe you presented earlier, Andrea, um, only about one in one million people have a true allergy to vaccines. Uh, and did we explain earlier, can you maybe just explain briefly what the what they're usually allergic to? Yeah, so, so typically when someone has a true allergic reaction, Reaction to a vaccine, it's usually to a component of the vaccine called an excipient. An excipient is a is a vehicle. It's a delivery component. So this could be um, things like like egg in the um, influenza vaccine or things like that. So in in the COVID nineteen RNA vaccines, the excipient here is this lipid, this fatty acid little lipid particle, and it's it's made up of a polymer of polyethylene glycol, and um, actually allergies to that molecule are also extremely rare. Um, There's been less than 10 reported allergies um, every year for the last 15 years to this 
type of molecule in the literature. So um, not only is the potential excipient in this vaccine, you know, have very, very rare rates of allergy, but there's no other components in this vaccine like egg or other materials that are actually known to be allergenic. So let's let's talk about what the actual side effects to the vaccine are, um, you know, per the clinical trials. So when we look at the data, we see that the majority of reactions were mild to moderate. So things that we'd expect, injection site pain and soreness in about 84% of participants, fatigue in about 63%, headache in about 55%, muscle pain in about 38%, chills 32%, joint pain 24%, and fever around 14%. All of these things can be resolved or at least um, mitigated with Tylenol and other over-the-counter medications, and they were resolved in a short time frame, usually one to two days. So they're short-term and they're very mild to moderate. Were you just about to say something? Oh, Jess, I was just going to say all of these reactions are things that you would, of course, expect with a vaccine. Um, Right. You know, and I think think it's um, for context, and and I made this analogy, but I've seen several other people do it too, and and it's really encouraging that other experts in the field have as well. so, so the the adverse or the reactions to the vaccine are are um, a little bit more severe than when you get the flu shot, but but less severe than the shingles vaccine. And I think it's important to note that both of those vaccines, flu shot and the shingles vaccines, are highly recommended for people and are both categorized as safe and effective and have been on the market for many years. Now, talking about severe adverse events, those are extremely rare, less than 0.05% chance of having a serious adverse event in response to the COVID vaccine. Um, And they were less common in older individuals. Uh, With regard to mortality, there were six deaths total, four in the placebo group and two in the vaccine group. So actually more in the placebo group than in the actual experimental group. And none of these deaths were actually related to the vaccine. Um, Should we reiterate the effectiveness of the vaccines, Andrew? Do you want to take us through the first dose and second dose? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, of course, there's there's always going to be mild or moderate, you know, immune reactions to vaccine, but it's important to keep in mind that this vaccine is extremely effective. So um, after the first dose, we had about 52% efficacy uh, in terms of preventing COVID-19. And after the second dose, which is three weeks after, that increased to 95% efficacy. Um, that and the range there is going to be somewhere between ninety to ninety-eight percent. That's that ext- so incredible, right? It's <laughs> remarkable. I mean, it's it's in line with the best vaccines that we have available, and we have other vaccines that are not that not as effective as that, and they are still considered very effective. And the amazing thing is that the efficacy is we're seeing that it's consistent across demographic groups, right? So different ages, races, and risk factors. So that's also really important. And and I think that's a really important piece to highlight, Jess, because, of course, we're seeing, um, you know, increased or poor health outcomes in obviously older persons, younger persons with risk factors, and also in persons of, of color um, communities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the fact that it is equally efficacious bodes very well for protecting these these more vulnerable people. Now, what about COVID outcomes? Um, there were 10 severe cases of COVID, nine which occurred in the placebo group and one in the vaccine group. Is that right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in addition to reducing the incidence of symptomatic COVID-19, it also appears to reduce the severity of COVID-19, which is, you know, a secondary outcome, but our secondary endpoint to the trial, but also very substantial because that could be, you know, the line between needing hospitalization and maybe having a poor health outcome because the hospital's overwhelmed and not needing that hospitalization. So now, Andrea, you know, this obviously... (laughs) you know a heck of a lot more about this than I do, but we've seen all of the different graphs and figures to come out of these reports. And and really, it's just so impressive. So in addition to the high levels of antibodies that are produced as a result of the vaccine, vaccinated individuals produced a robust T-cell response, and both indicate a very strong memory immune response. Can you just very briefly, what does this mean to the layman? Can you tell us what this means and why this is so important? Absolutely. And again, if you want to hear more about the immune response, um, episode one, I do a pretty thorough summary about the innate versus <laughs> the adaptive. But anyway, so when you have this memory immune response, you have to activate the adaptive immune system. And so these are, this is why it takes time to generate immunity. So we saw in the, the clinical trial data that it took about 14 days to actually see the vaccine effect. So if you looked at the placebo and the vaccinated groups, they, they followed similar trend lines with regard to number of cases for the first 14 days after the first dose. And then that trend line in the vaccinated group started to plateau pretty dramatically. Um, and the reason it takes 14 days is because that's that's how long it takes to establish this memory immunity, which is what's going to recognize the virus in real life and fend fend it off so you don't actually become ill. Um, and, and that adaptive immune response requires two different main cell types, the B cells and the T cells. The B cells are what produce those antibodies, and the antibodies are able to what we call neutralize the virus. Um, but the T cells also participate in helping to clear our body from the infection. So the fact that we're seeing both nice antibody production, as well as very specific um, measurable T-cell responses bodes well for the potential long-term protection with this vaccine. So let's just very briefly recap. Um, Are there side effects to the vaccine? Yes, but they're to be expected and they're a good thing. A true allergy to vaccines is extremely rare, about one in a million. Um, The majority of the reactions that we're seeing to the COVID-19 vaccine are super mild to moderate and things like, um, you know, pain at the site of injection, soreness, fatigue, headache, uh, and and other things that are very easily um, addressed by over-the-counter drugs such as Tylenol. Um, they're also very short-lived, about one to two days. The risk of a, a, a serious adverse event is extremely rare. Um, and really just everything that we're seeing, you know, all, all, the, all the data that's coming out on these vaccines is indicating that we get high levels of antibodies and this really robust immune response, as you just said, T cells and and memory immune response. So really all of this is very promising. Yeah, Jess, I think mm -hmm. I think it's it's important to also keep in mind that, you know, we are going to be continuing to monitor the participants in the clinical trial. So, you know, beyond the the months that they've been monitored to this point, they're going to be continued to to be monitored to ensure that the efficacy holds up and of course no other potential, you know, effects um, crop up. Now, it's important, I think, to note that this type of 
vaccine technology, the mRNA, is actually very unlikely to cause serious side effects because of the simplicity and the nature of the vaccine. There's no virus actually involved. And again, as we mentioned, that RNA, as soon as it's used to make that protein, it it disintegrates, it deteriorates. So there's not a lot going on in that vaccine that's going to, in theory, persist or or lead to some, you know, unforeseen or long-term uh, effect here. I'm so glad you said that. I mean, I, I feel we we get this question all the time, or, or at least I don't even know if it's a question. It's, it's a fear that, you know, it's this new technology and, you know, we're all terrified of what's going to happen as a result of this new mRNA vaccine. And I, and I think it's really important to know that mRNA, this mRNA technology is not new. It's something that's actually been around and been studied for decades. I mean, you certainly know, know better than, than I do. Um, and so... I think that fear that this is this novel, te- you know, technology, we, we have to kind of put put that to bed. So I'm glad that that you mentioned that. And also that there is no actual virus in the vaccine, not even dead virus or attenuated virus, as is present in other vaccine technologies. So might actually be safer than other vaccines if, if you're concerned about the virus actually being present in the vaccine. Would, is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, in theory and in principle, it very well could be true. Now, of course, we can't predict the future. Um, but but also, you know, if you look at the historical long-term effects of other vaccines, they're few and far between. So, you know, if we're looking at vaccine technology and kind of the the long-term effects, typically these adverse events, they're going to occur within a short period after a vaccine is administered. They're not cropping up years later or things like that, and certainly would be unlikely to do so in the case of, of this new RNA vaccine as well. So, Andrea, do you think we have time just to debunk one more vaccine maybe quickly? Um, yeah, <laughs> Oh, I think so. I think, I think there's so. going to be a lot more to deal with. So let's try and squeeze one more in this episode. Okay. So there is this really pesky myth uh, circulating that the vaccine causes infertility in women. And the claim is that there, the COVID-19 spike protein, which the Pfizer vaccine causes an immune response against, also trains the body to attack this protein in the placenta, which could lead to infertility in women. Andrea, I'm going to need you to break down the actual protein, but I'm just going to go ahead if I can and just jump ahead to the punchline of this, which is that we know that this is not the case because A, of course, the clinical trials produced no evidence that this was the case. And in fact, several of the women in the vaccine group were dismissed because they became pregnant during the trial. There were four in the vaccine group and five in the placebo who became pregnant during the trial. But can you walk us through just a little bit about the proteins and why we know this is not the case? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this might be an interesting discussion, uh, the the history of this particular protein in the placenta that's gotten all this uh, attention. Um, So the protein is called syncytin. Syncytin one, um, and it's a protein in the placenta. And um, the the claim is that it's it's homologous, meaning it shares a similarity to the spike protein for the virus that causes COVID nineteen, which is called SARS CoV two. I, I like to be very specific about that. COVID nineteen is the disease. SARS CoV two is the virus. Um, so so the reason that we have placentas is actually due to a whole really interesting story about our uh, evolutionary process and how 
um, different types of viruses have interacted with us in our microbiome. Um, but that's kind of where this theory started. So the uh, in reality, proteins are made up of sequences of amino acids. Amino acids are the building blocks of proteins, very much like how a sequence of RNA leads to a sequence of a protein. The proteins themselves have these different subunits, and these are different amino acids. So the homology that's been claimed, um, and homology is sharing similarity in the sequence of those amino acids um, between cysteine 1 and the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein is five amino acids, okay? For reference, the entire spike protein length is 1,273 amino acids. So that is not remotely any sort of similarity that would ever lead to kind of this cross-reactive immune response that people are claiming. Um, We don't even have the same immune response to the spike protein in the OG SARS, which is SARS-CoV-1, and SARS-CoV-2. And they're 73.7% homologous to each other. Um, So, I mean... If you simply look at the biology of it, there's no credibility to that claim. And as you already mentioned, in practicality, um, we've seen pregnancies arise after vaccination. So I think we've debunked that on both uh, a macro and a micro level. I think that's safe to say. And and as we've been saying, guys, there are so many myths that are cropping up. We're doing our best to address those on the pod and also in between episodes with social media posts. So we hope that if you're listening in, you're also following us on our social media pages. Um, Andrea, do you want to take us home? Yeah, sure. I did the math really quick just for Uh-oh. reference because I'm a nerd. Um, so the homology, if you really want to compare it between cystic and one and, and the spike protein is... 0.39%. Um, so again, no no one, no biologist, no molecular biologist would consider that actually a similarity. Um, Love it. All right. So thanks for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts uh, and follow us on social media. Next week on the pod, we will dig into a few more COVID-19 myths. I know some of you are getting a little uh, exhausted from the myth debunking, but we have the Moderna FDA review on the horizon, um, so we want to cover all of our bases. We promise we will switch gears soon and discuss some other interesting science topics on the pod. Um, as well, we will continue to provide updates on COVID-19 vaccine process on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah. I am the scientist.